New ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. Our guest today is Joshua Friedman. He is one of a handful of people in the world with over 25 years working full-time on the topic of emotional intelligence. He's a best-selling author, master certified coach, and the co-founder and CEO of the global emotional intelligence community, Six Seconds. Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. It is a pleasure to be here. Our emotional intelligence, our ability to be smarter with our feelings and to be able to leverage this understanding to help us make better decisions, it correlates with success factors like effectiveness, relationships, well-being, and quality of life. It's important, which is why I'm so glad that you're here to talk about emotional intelligence, how it varies by gender, by generation, and what it means for our teams and our communities. To set the stage, your organization tracks emotional intelligence. And over the past few years, there have been a lot of changes from social media to global pandemic. Are there any macro trends regarding humanity's overall emotional intelligence? I'm afraid the macro trend is not great. And we can see it in the headlines. You know, it's not just in, not in any one country, but as we start looking at the rise of populism, we have kind of more dictatorially oriented politicians coming to power. We have more, you know, we have an invasion in, in Europe. We have just a level of chaos and complexity and distress that we can see in our businesses. We can see it in our health systems. We can see it in our governments. We can see it in our societies. And that is, it. I don't think it's that emotional intelligence, a lack of emotional intelligence is causing those things, but we can see the correlation, particularly between some of the emotional intelligence companies that have declined and the level of volatility in the world. Oh, that's interesting. Is there a difference by gender? I know there's a lot of like, women are from Venus and men are from Mars, and this means we understand things differently. So when you look at the data, do you see a difference by gender? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Do tell. (laughs) You heard that in my voice. You know, when (laughs) I first looked at this, I said, you know, no, there's not going to be that much difference. And there's not at at an overall level. People who identify as female and people who identify as male on our assessment, their total EQ scores are almost the same on average. Hmm. And as we look I feel across, a butt in that answer somewhere. Here's a butt. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about a randomized global sampling across over 130 countries. We've been tracking this for over a decade. We have a really robust methodology. So for some people who are going, well, wait, you didn't ask. You know, yes, we did. Okay. Our our sample is biased. Our sample comes from our assessment that's used in business. To some degree, it's used in in education programs, in public community programs. So our population tends to be a little more educated, a little higher level in management than the overall general population. Okay. But we randomized for that. And in our randomized sample, the overall female and, and male Q levels are quite similar. But then when we start looking at the individual competencies, the first time we did this, I I'm like, guys, we can't know. This can't be true. It was exact opposite of the highest scores for females and the were the lowest scores for males and vice versa oh. on the individual competencies. Now in 20, our most recent report, they're not such a beautiful mirror image, but there's definitely differences and some 
kind of surprising differences, particularly related to women in leadership. That's really interesting. So I mean, you mentioned competencies. And when we think about emotional intelligence, a lot of people feel it's really woolly. And so you've linked it back to these eight competencies. And I want to walk through them one by one. And if you can give us a little bit of understanding about how you define the competency and what it might look like in practice. And then also, given what you've just said, you know, give us the skinny on on some of some of the in inside what you're seeing male women in leadership. So let's start with emotional literacy. Yeah. So any form of intelligence, the definition of the word intelligence, if you you know go to Merriam-Webster or whatever, it's accurately acquiring data mm. and using that data to effectively solve problems. So when we break that down, what are all of the component parts to do that with emotional data? From our, we started 25 years ago, we started, our founder started doing this work way, way before that. Our first curriculum in this space was published in 1978. When we look at all of our history of how do we actually do that, we we developed eight competencies and, and we, we depict them in a circle. So I will say the first one, but it's also the last one is enhancing emotional literacy. And that's just the vocabulary of emotions, being able to say, oh, that's what that is. I see. Okay. So it's the ability to recognize, recognize, and then move forward, leveraging that knowledge. In yeah, an to name it. And, okay. Yeah. And to see like, oh, frustration and annoyance, there's some similar things, but they're actually different. And uh, when, okay. And the fMRI data is super interesting. When people name their feelings accurately, their feelings actually start to, their, their unpleasant feelings start to subside. And so there's something about this bridge between cognition, cognition and affect just in naming it. And maybe a starting point, we might not even use in a feeling word. We might say it's spiky. I feel spiky and hot. Uh-huh. You know? Well, people say like, I'm feeling very stabby today. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Or hot tempered, right? That's another one that's very common. But so we can do it with metaphors, but when we use actual emotion words, it has a concrete meaning. We can mm. communicate about it. We can kind of get our hands around it. And when somebody says to you, you know, I am feeling disheartened, it actually means something quite different than I'm feeling sad, although they, mm-hmm. they're in the same family. Right. We're able to get a nuance and, and really capture that. So that's the kind of entry building block for all of the other parts of emotional intelligence. You know, feel it to heal it or name it to tame it. Or, right, you know. right, 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 right. So emotional literacy, people who identify as female, people who identify as male. Differences? Females are much higher. Okay. Okay. And I think, I mean, this, I would imagine there might be some cultural things there, right? I mean, yeah, but we're, we're talking about 130 countries, right? So right. yes, there are cultural things. And, you know, this is one of those places where every woman that I work with is like, oh, blinding flash of the obvious. Yeah. Right. You know? Captain obvious. Ah, okay. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. And they're like, how's it going? All right. Mm, right. <laughs> Let's right. move on. Well, and so, okay. So if we start from that play, what's interesting is, you know, name it to tame it. You start from that place and women do really well. So I'm interested how we move through these competencies. Next one, recognize patterns. What, what, what does that mean? And wouldn't it follow that women just tend to be great at yes. that? <laughs> yeah. Women are going to be are, are on average and we could just say Ms. Average and Mr. Average, right? Because okay. if we look at a hundred thousand people, what we might find is that you know, 25,000 of the men are better at this than 25,000 of the women. But if we consolidate them all down, so recognize patterns is about being able to see your own recurring reactions. 
And ah, when, okay. Right. Right. So, all right. So I was disappointed. And so then I went in my room and, and stayed in bed like, okay, well, is that what you typically do? Yeah. You know, sometimes with ice cream. All right. So perfect. You've recognized your pattern. Right. Well, and, also if you, if you put that in a business setting, right. You know, yes. leadership does X staff does Y. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So we got bad news and everybody pretends to be busy. Okay. That's a pattern. Mm. Those mm-hmm. patterns are, and when we look at it from a neurobiological basis and kind of seeing, well, what is it that we've learned to cope with these various opportunities and threats? So emotions signal opportunities and threats, and we've each learned ways of, of dealing with those. And the kind of classic fight, 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 flight, or freeze Right at a macro level, those are patterns, right? So, right. you know, some days, you know, the manager comes in and like everybody hides under their desks, that's freeze. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. hiding. Right. Right. Okay. What about con- applying consequential thinking? Right. So again, Ms. I mean, I Average, suppose that's linked to the pattern, right? You see the pattern, you say, well, this is what's going to happen next. Exactly. Yeah. And, and Ms. Average is stronger. This is about evaluating risks. It also might be connected to, in some degree to anxiety, to saying, wait, bad things could happen if we, if we do this. And I think we have some biological conditioning around, you know, risk-taking that might be at play here. But, oh, interesting. Well, because I was just thinking, does this mean that if you were having a, if you were building a team of risk managers, that that (laughs) would be better have some good skills in this area. Right. Right. Interesting. So one of the things that this is one of the competencies that's changed a lot over the last few years, it's gone up a lot. It's one of the only ones that's gone up a lot. And I think it has to do with, with anxiety, anxiety, not in our assessment, but in lots of measures has gone up. Uh, tremendously in the world, maybe 30% in the last couple of years. And I think, you know, we all have felt that when we have greater uh, instability, greater kind of existential threats that we're kind of grappling with, the consequences get bigger, the emotional consequences get bigger. One of the really interesting puzzles, by the way, is we recognize this pattern. Okay, when I feel uncertain, I withdraw. Mm. That's a very typical pattern. Right. The consequence of that, I'm kind of sheltering in place, but other consequence of that, I don't connect with people. And we're also seeing data that loneliness has increased. And the Cigna study on mental health, loneliness is one of the primary drivers of, of mental health challenge. And it's increased dramatically, particularly for younger people. And, and our, our data also supports this this age gap and younger people really struggling with a sense of connectedness. So, okay, then question if I'm going to follow that. So I'm, my anxiety has gone up. So I'm applying consequential thinking, not necessarily correct consequential thinking, but I'm just, I'm, I'm seeing, I'm, I'm thinking consequences. Is that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And you're thinking both logical and in our work, right? Sometimes people hear consequential thinking and they think like, oh, that's like, when is the bridge going to fail? Sure. But also, how are you going to feel when the bridge fails? Mm, interesting. Okay. Now, one of the things I thought the next one, let's talk about navigate emotions, because mm. if I remember the report correctly, Mr. Average tended to be better at this. And that surprised me because if you've got yeah. all these, if Ms. Average is like knocking it out of the park on the things we've just talked about, why? How, what's going on there? That is a really good question. What we can see in the data is, a, and we've seen this over and over, that men score, Mr. Average scores quite a lot higher on this one. 
navigating emotions, we distinguish between managing emotions or controlling emotions and navigating. The term navigating, we're trying to get that sense that I'm going to use my emotion in a productive way. It's a forward-looking piece. And part of that definition that I mentioned, you know, we're going to get the data and then we're going to use the data Mm. for problem solving. Here's where we're going to use, start using the data and saying, okay, well, what feeling would be helpful here? How do I move towards it? And I would guess that a lot of uh, people who identify as female are socialized to kind of stay in the emotion and talk about the emotion. And a lot of people who are social who identify as male are socialized to, to move on. Right. Okay. That's interesting. Now, here's a question you mentioned earlier about younger generations and anxiety and consequential thinking. Do you see some generational differences in this ability to navigate emotion? Yeah, it goes up as you get older. Oh, so that's a trend. So experience helps you there in a way you could say it's part of the growth of a person. Yeah, a little a little bit. The, the self-awareness pieces grow even more as you get older. Mm. It's not like with age comes wisdom automatically. You, okay. you actually have to do the work. But there's a a piece about kind of how do how do people at different generations kind of what are they paying attention to with emotion? Okay. And we're going to talk a little bit about empathy a little bit later. But mm. there's an important connection between navigating emotions and empathy. Mm. Interesting. And this kind of letting the emotions in, letting your own emotions in, letting others' emotions in. And one of the things that we've saw in this in this study is that in older generations, there's more orientation towards knowing your own emotions than paying attention to others' emotions. Oh, that's interesting, especially if we think about this sort of global environment right now and leadership in the globe. Yeah. That's, and- that's really that's really interesting. So so then just because I want to make sure I don't leave out any of the competencies. So then engage in intrinsic motivation. Mm-hmm. And that's that you do something because of, explain it. I don't want to define it for you. You define it for me. <laughs> yeah. So are you getting your source of energy from within or are you looking for carrots and sticks? So oh. we all have some amount of intrinsic motivation. We use this term engage. It's there. Do you Can you grab onto it, hold it, leverage it, use it? And again, Mr. Average, slight, slight advantage here. Well, here I'm curious also about, about some generational differences because we talk, you know, the HR world talks about self-motivated, self-directed, and there has been some conversation around younger people not necessarily knowing what to do or how to do that. Is that, mm-hmm. is that a, a, I mean, that's just a anecdotal HR manager kind of thing. Is that what this would be? Is that something that you're seeing? Well, actually, we're seeing that younger people are having really high intrinsic motivation. Oh, okay. So that means like pursuing your own goals. I'm going to start my entrepreneurial business, that kind of thing. Yeah. Or this is important to me and I'm going to stand up for it. So would you say it's also a motivation that relates to self as opposed to motivation that relates to other people? No, I would say it's motivation that relates to your own values and what's important to you, which may be Uh, self. Which may be self or it may be other. I I see. And maybe the climate. I mean, just for example. And I think as we think about it from a business perspective, it's kind of annoying when you're like, I want you to be motivated about X. Like, no, I'm actually not. (laughs) 
Well, this is so, oh, so fascinating. I do a lot of interviews around young consumer behaviors. And Mm. one of the shifting things for brands is to understand what motivates and, and engages some of these younger consumers isn't what necessarily resonated with their older generations. And and that's really interesting. What about exercising optimism? Now, hmm. how's that doing? <laughs> so, and it's important here. I think a lot of people think about optimism as like, oh, just paste a smile on and, you know, pretend everything's fine. That's denial. That's not optimism. Okay. Okay. We, you know, the term exercise is important. And exercise is about the work. Okay. I'm going to make things better. Uh, and there's a possibility okay. we can do that. Now, this is thankfully one of the other competencies that's gone up in the last five years. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So interesting as kind of perceived risk increasing. Also, maybe that sense like we have to do something. Hmm. We can and we can. Not and only we, we have to, but we can. We can do this. We got this. Yeah. yeah. And and I think that sometimes we don't know what it is that we're going to do and that's okay. We don't need a perfect plan. Optimism doesn't require a perfect plan, but it does require action. It does require a commitment to doing. It's hope is a little more passive. Optimism is a little more active. Mm. Saying like we're going to work for this. Right. Right. Oh, that's interesting. So, and and then we come to increase empathy. We talked about empathy a little bit earlier. Yeah. How how are the how's the is there a man Mister Average Miss Ms. Yeah. Average on that? I'm going to get in trouble here because Mister say Average, it's Mister Average. Mister Average scored higher. That's fascinating. I know. <laughs> it's and not what you expect. It's not what any of the women I work with <laughs> agree with. <laughs> well, I mean, but, I mean, so so what is it? Because, okay. So then what is the nuance? What is it? Why is that so? Again, I, I don't know. Okay. Um, one of the things that I can tell you that is important for us to explore in terms of gender and, and business is that in Every aspect of emotional intelligence, except for this, there's a, for women leaders and, and men leaders, there is a correlation between emotional intelligence and career progression. So basically these are tools that help you get ahead in your career. However, female senior executives scored lower on empathy than female. I have a theory there. Please <laughs> I have a tell theory. Me. My theory is that they're overcorrecting. Mm-hmm. That they're they're patterning and overcorrecting performatively, and it almost be it's sort of like medical students being really put through the ringer. That yeah. in order to to be perceived, because there there is the bias that they will be too empathetic, they yeah. overcorrect, and in order they are less empathetic because they're perceived as being more empathetic. So in order to hit neutral, they have to be less empathetic. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. There's also a tremendous amount of emotional labor that women are expected to do in the workplace. And Mm. there's a number of studies, and I can share a link with you to an article we wrote about this, where we're seeing, you know, women are are expected to do more of the, hey, how's it going? Oh, do you need a mentor? Which are- Oh, yeah. Right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if they're, especially in small businesses, entrepreneurial settings, there isn't a formalized HR department, but- whether it's a CFO or a CTO in the nascent organization, they will, if they're female, do that role too. And they're expected to of, do that role. And that's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. 
And the term emotional labor, right, is is about the, the effort, which is usually unpaid work that people are putting in in various aspects of their job. And there's a lot of gender bias around emotional labor. And basically everywhere in the world, women are doing more work that's emotional work than men. Well, and, yeah, you won't get any arguments from the women. Yeah. And sure. usually that's, you know, that's that's not part of the compensation package or job description. No, no. Wow. Okay. And then the last is pursuing noble goals. So mm -hmm. let's be really quick on that because I want to dive into some other stuff and we're already plowed. Time is flying. <laughs> so I'm um, so trouble with having eight competencies. This one is about putting purpose into action and it requires a long-term orientation saying, oh. where do we really want to go? Very similar scores on this, Mr. Average, slightly higher. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Okay. So let's, I want to talk about, I'm a manager, you know, we have some generational differences. Mm -hmm. If I'm a boomer or Gen X leader, what do I need to know about managing my millennial or Gen Z staff, given right. sort of emotional literacy macro, mm -hmm. not just that competency, but sort of looking at the whole thing? So one piece that is disturbing but we really need to grapple with is that people's emotional well-being is not great on average. Mm. And the younger you are, the more likely you are to be suffering. We had the Surgeon Generals for the first time in the US, the Surgeon General released an advisory on youth mental health. We have a, lots and lots of data from lots of different sources that Gen Z and younger are grappling with intense mental health challenges. So on average, you know, somebody's coming into your office, the younger they are, the more likely they are to be grappling with some, some level of distress. Hmm. And a strong piece of that is collaboration, connection, sense of community. Okay. Collaboration, connection, sense of community. And that immediately makes me think about how post-pandemic with hybrid workplaces, if you're new in the labor market, you know, this is maybe mm -hmm. your second job, you're not necessarily going into an office or you're working remote because people are hiring people remote. If you have that new young staff member and they're working remote, how do you, knowing this, knowing this about them, how can I work to to support them collaboratively, connect, how can mm -hmm. I connect them? What are some of the like real tactical things I can do? Well, the first one is, is not really tactical, but it's just recognizing that that healthy, strong, connected relationships are a priority for you as a manager. Okay. That if people feel disconnected, if they feel lonely, if they don't have support systems around them, you are not doing your job fully. Okay. And you're not going to get the most out of them. So if you want high-performing, long-performing employees, make sure they're socially connected because we're social animals. Take responsibility for that part of your job. Any, now, how to do any it? Any tips and tricks? Yeah. Yeah. How to do it? Like we, most of us have a have a conversation, talk about things beyond work, talk about what's important, ask more interesting questions. Don't mm. ask how's it going. Like ask something more interesting than that. Like what's one thing that you saw this weekend? that was interesting to you what's you know where where are you gonna where if you could go anywhere in the world to have lunch where would you go okay one of okay. my colleagues so build um, build true connection with people build true like, connection that's like more nuanced more complex more dimensional 
Okay. That's, and, and if you are, if you're the employee and you are that young person and you are seeking those things, can you, can you ask those questions? Can you do that? And of, of your superior, is that recommended or how as a, as a subordinate or a junior team member, how can you do things? How can you be proactive in building that for yourself? I was just somebody last week who's in this exact position and said to me, you know, people just don't seem that open to talk to me. Mm. And I think I go back to the advice that I, I remember giving my son when he was like 10 years old, which is listen to people and figure out what's interesting to them and ask them about that. Right. Um, pay attention to what people uh, kind of what is energizing people and engage around that. And so that's a mutual, that's a two way street. You know, whether you're the uh, kind of older person in this conversation or the younger person in this conversation, just noticing, well, what is this person spending time on? The more you learn about each other, the more opportunities you're going to have for more interesting conversations and touch points that are going to, they're going to kind of deepen and broaden the relationship. But I, I think it's, these are actually really easy things to do, but we don't do it because we're busy and we don't mm. remember that this is central to our work and well-being. Right. Well, now I'm going to take a take a turn. Let's talk about some let's talk about Elon Musk, who's been in the news. He was in the news for <laughs> firing a lot of people and demanding that everyone who wanted to stay be committed to super hardcore work. Offices turned into bedrooms, and some leaders publicly admired him. But energetic bursts like that and demands like that. Is that even a sustainable thing? Can you have a workplace that is super hardcore perpetually and get results? Absolutely not. Okay. Um, again, going back to the U.S. Surgeon General, for the first time, we have a new framework for workplace mental health and well-being. There's like 250 citations in this report about the effects of Know, trying to stay running a sprint when it's actually a marathon. Now, as a leader, I mean, I my organization has about 50 employees around the world. And there are times when I'm like, folks, we have got to dig in right now. Right. And but I, I recognize that that there is a price to pay for that. And I'm I'm very aware that like this last couple of months, I've been really asking people to dig deeper and I have been how, digging deeper myself. How long can you expect a sprint to last? How long is a sustainable sprint? I mean, realistically. Again, I don't know, but I have been doing some surveys of my team in, in various meetings and just doing a quick anonymous poll. You know, how's your energy level? Are you feeling supported? Mm. Uh, how exhausted are you right now? And, and, and monitoring it because I'm concerned that we're now like we were really pushing hard in in November. And at the same time, I also said, you know, there were like during Thanksgiving week in the US, I said, let we'll just have no meetings this week mm -hmm. and you know, take the time to catch up and mm -hmm. also go for a walk. Right. Well, I mean, what's interesting there is that it's we're recording this in December and you're talking about November and you're being sensitive to it. There are some entrepreneurial companies that they've been in sprint mode for a year. Yeah. I mean, you and, know, that, and we're seeing and now, the effect. well, and they're seeing the effect. And so then the question is, if you're in a business and you are working, you know, to the edge, to the edge, to the edge, and you find that you're rolling into year two of working to the edge, 
is there something fundamentally flawed with your business model or the way you're organized? Should do you need to take a one step back and think big picture? Like if if you don't have enough staff, if it's not structured properly, is that at what point do you have to say, I need to rethink this? Or else my business model needs to be one there I'm replacing staff more frequently. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could just say, hey, churn is just part of the game. I don't think that works. I, no, I, yeah, it's, it's probably not advisable. No, I've heard but, that. Yeah. I mean, when we can see levels of burnout are really problematic. And in our research earlier this year, we saw that all of the aspects of team performance had actually bounced back up above their 2019 levels, except sustainability. Hmm. And it, it's been a long haul. And, you know, when people are listening to this in February, we'll be saying, yep, this has been another few months, few hard few months and the ongoing uncertainty. And I think at some point we have to say, you know what, we, we can't just wait for the quote new normal to arrive. We're going to be in this instability and uncertainty for a, a good while, right? if not forever. And so we're going to need to develop systems and structures that are more networked, are more connected, are more agile, are more supportive, like build in systems around resiliency more intentionally. And that might mean needing to reduce some operating costs so that you can have more staff. It might mean changing your business model, but it certainly means changing your relational model and thinking about how you in invest in relationship, recognizing what actually drives flourishing is is relationship is connectedness and is purpose that is so fascinating and what a great place to to end especially as we talked about musk and talked about his goals and his desire to flourish and that this it, doing the work long term that's what's going to cause flourishing that's what i'm hearing is that to say fair doing important work together. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us today. I could talk to you forever. It's so interesting. Great thank stuff. you. Well, I'd love to do it again. <laughs> Excellent. Take care. Bye-bye. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience. Thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next. <laughs>